campuses and venues join us. That was a great uh, song for us to enter into our, our time in, in the Word with, uh, to be reminded that He is a good, good Father, and that you are loved by Him, and that it's who you are. And the reason it's especially important today is because we're about to have a biblical discussion on marriage, and this is going to be uh, probably the most pointed discussion you've ever had with somebody in a long time on exactly what marriage is, what God designed it to be. And and there's going to be just a a lot of different reactions. I can tell you that right now uh, at Cactus Venue Chapel and here um, in light of today's discussion. Some of you are going to be tempted to to shout out amen and celebrate and what have you. And and then there's others of you that are going to be wrestling with this and processing it in your minds and hearts. And that's a really good thing. And then there's certainly going to be others of you that this is going to be a difficult, a difficult stuff to hear uh, because of your experiences, your past, or maybe even what you're going through right now. And I want you to know, as your friend and pastor, I get it, and I empathize with that. Uh, you know, uh, the Bible says that there's parts of the Bible itself that are really hard to hear, even hard to understand, and this might be that for you. And, and there's also some shame you're dealing with, maybe even guilt. So here's my pastoral encouragement to you today before I even pray. And that's, you know, let's, let's shed aside shame. That, that's called, uh, called worldly sorrow. It does no good for your soul. I'm, I've been praying for you that that would not be the name of the game for you. Uh, let's work through any guilt that we have because, again, God is a God of immense forgiveness and grace, and he loves you. As we just sang, it's who you are. And then here's what I'd like you to do today, and that is to, you know, right now, just sort of put your past on hold if you can, and let's dream together. Let's dream with vision and conviction about what our lives can be as we align them with God's word. Because that's who God is. He's a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seven chances. Seven times 70 he forgives. And he wants us to pick ourselves up and to look to him and follow him no matter what we might have been through. And that's what today's message is going to be about. God's design for marriage, what it is, and how you and I can align our lives with it, no matter what you have been through or where you are right now. I love you. He loves you. And this is good stuff. So open up your heart and your mind uh, right now to God's word. And as you do so, let's bow and pray, and we'll dive right in. Father God, um, we live in a culture, as we're going to see in about 40 seconds, that um, is, is very renegade when it comes to the understanding of marriage that you've presented to us in your word. But we live in a culture today that's not too dissimilar to Old Testament times where people did what was right in their own eyes, in their own minds. And so, Father, I pray that as we uh, match up your word uh, with the truth that you've given us when it comes to this thing called marriage, I I pray, God, that you would help us to be courageous men and women, men and women who are not afraid to to learn and know what you have said. And, Lord, as we said, there's going to be some of us that celebrate, others of us process. Some of us are going to be wrestling with this. And so, God, meet each one of us individually now. Help us to be courageous. 
conviction-oriented, visionary when it comes to what you have laid out for us. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name, and I trust all of us can say amen. So I want to begin today by asking you a question, as I often do, but today is going to be a very different kind of question. It's going to be an ideological question, but a very critical one nonetheless. And I'm going to tell you right now that how you answer this question will have everything to do with your view of marriage, the shape of your marriage, the level and joy of intimacy in your marriage, and even the strength that your marriage will have and your ability to weather the storms of life in your marriage. It's the initial question that every single one of us should be asking and answering when it comes to this thing called marriage. And the question is more of a paragraph, so I'm not going to put it on the board. Just listen to this, process it as you go along. Let's all answer this privately to ourselves. Here's the question. Is marriage... Uh, something that is simply and solely a societal and cultural norm that each generation receives from the generation before them and then kind of makes it up as they go along? Or is marriage something designed by an outside source, a divine outside source, that carries with it certain parameters that need to be worked within if it is going to work right? That's the question before us. I want to repeat it a little bit faster so you have time to process this because we're going to be processing it for the next 40 minutes together. Is marriage something that is simply a societal and cultural norm that each generation makes up as it goes along? Or is it something designed by a divine source outside of us that carries with it certain guardrails that need to be lived within if it is going to work right. You see, there are people out there today, and many of you know this, in our world that see marriage as a societal and cultural norm. That's what the textbooks would call it. They see it as something that's based totally by culture itself, and then one culture passes it down to the next culture. And here's where it gets tricky. That next culture can either receive this societal norm and just use it like their parents did, or as contemporary times change and as values change, they can adapt it and change it to fit their own progressing mores. If you read any modern day sociology textbook, this will be by and large the definition that you get. It's a part of a naturalistic, humanistic worldview that marriage is a human convention, a cultural norm that's passed down to each generation and it can change drastically over time. But then there are others, and there have been for thousands of years now, who conversely see marriage as divinely sourced, coming to us from a divine being outside of us. He's the one that gave us this thing called marriage. He gave us the framework of what marriage should be, and that if followed, it's by and large going to work right. You see, the former view, a societal and cultural norm view, is primarily based on an inside-out view. We discover and invent what marriage should be for ourselves, pass it down to our kids, and they can change and adapt it as they want. But the divine-sourced view is an outside-in view. 
That view sees marriage as coming to us from on high, given to us by one who made us and loves us, and it carries with it certain parameters and guardrails for it to work right. You see, one view says that you're bound by the culture and times that you live in, while the other view says that the same design has been going on for thousands of years and has the track record of billions of people down through the ages who have lived it right and thrived. One view says that the rules could change tomorrow. And many times in cultures, we see that happen as we're seeing in our day and age. The other view says that though there is variety and change, there are some key aspects that never change. And you can count on them from generation to generation. I love this. One view says that you're in it alone. The other view says that you're in it with a lot of help from above, from the one who made marriage and wants your marriage to thrive. So let me go back to the beginning. Which is it for you? If you and I were having a cup of coffee and I said to you, which view of marriage do you embrace? Because it's very clear where we are as a culture right now. What would you say? Because how you answer this question, gang, which side you come down on will determine not only your view of marriage, but I believe it will ultimately determine the joy, strength, security, satisfaction, and even the longevity of your marital satisfaction. Now, obviously today, or any day, I'm not going to spend a lot of time arguing for the secular humanist view of marriage. And the reason is, and you should expect this from your pastor, is that I don't believe it. I settled this issue 38 years ago when I was in seminary, because it's been going on for a long time, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time ever defending that view. No, what I would rather do is that in the 35 minutes we have remaining right now is discuss the merits and the details of this divinely sourced view of marriage. And so what I want to do in our time remaining today is walk you through a couple of the key biblical components of God's design for marriage. That when God originally set this thing up called marriage, what did he have in mind and how was it supposed to work? And then, as we wrap up here in a few minutes, I'm going to share with you very practically some tips or helps on how you can go through the very difficult times in marriage and come out on the other side. In other words, how to deal with it when you don't live God's design. So, first let's talk about God's design. And here is the first aspect of God's design for marriage. And it's what we call God's creation design, God's creation design. And if there's any value that marks what his creation design is to be about, it would be the word permanence. So look with me at how God lays this out way at the beginning of the Bible. You ready for this? Like page two of the Bible, way back in the book of Genesis, chapter two, verse 24, Adam and Eve The very first human beings have just been created, and now God's going to share what's going to happen when Adam and Eve come together for this very, very first marriage. And this is the description it gives. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So try to put yourself maybe back however long ago it was when Adam and Eve walked this earth. 
They don't have any parents because God is the one who made them directly, but God's setting a pattern for what is to come as Adam and Eve come together. And he says, from now on, after Adam and Eve, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I've put for you in yellow the operative ideas behind God's design for marriage here. Give me another slide here. And that is that there's a leaving There's a a joining, and then God does something that creates something. What do we mean here? That word leave has created some consternation over the years, believe it or not, among quite a few families that wrestle with this. Uh, Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't like the fact that your little Johnny or Susie that you raised and raised to be a part of your family is going to somehow leave. Let me uh, not soften it for you at all. Let's talk about what the word leave means. It's the Hebrew word azab, and it means to loosen. It means that over the years, you have cranked that nut tight on that bolt to create your family, and all of a sudden, God is loosening it. And he's loosening it because he's about ready to part something. Uh, Jesus, when he quoted this verse in in his life, uh, used the Greek word that means to give up, to leave behind. I know some of us don't like it. And I will soften it in a second here. But let's just understand it for what it is. God said a family grows up and at some point, little Johnny or Susie is going to leave that family. Now, what do they do when they leave? They join. I actually like the King James version better. Do you remember what the word was here in the King James? You leave and you cleave. It just rhymes better. I don't really read the King James. But you leave and you cleave. The, uh, the New American Standard Bible is join here. It, it's the Hebrew word debak, and I love it. It means to follow close. It means to stick. When Jesus would requote this passage here in Matthew 19, verse 5, in the, in the Greek, this word means to be firmly cemented. So again, this is not complicated stuff, but you're going to see how profound it is in a minute. Little Johnny or Susie leaves, and then Johnny or Susie come together, and they are now joined. They stick, they're like glue together, husband and wife. And then look at how God describes that coming together in marriage. He says it's one flesh. There's been a lot written, a lot speculated on what this idea of one flesh means. I've read voluminous commentaries and books over the years on what does it mean to be one flesh. (laughs) And it really, again, I don't think it's all that complicated. This is God's vantage point. The word one in the Hebrew means one. Uh, the word flesh in the Hebrew means flesh or body. So Saul is saying here, again, we try to look at it from our perspective, it's simply God, because God is the one talking here. God looks at this new husband, new wife who have left their family, come together, and he says, you ready for this? I see one unit. I see one heart, one mind, one body. They have now come together in such a way. Here's really the point, gang. There's a new family that has been formed here. See, we've made Genesis 2.24 too complicated. This is simply God's description of how families are created. That's what he's saying here. He's simply saying that here's how I want families to be formed. I want Johnny to leave the home. I want Susie to leave the home. I want them to fall in love with each other. I want them to come together. 
in a marriage ceremony, we'll talk about that in a minute, say their I do's, consummate the marriage, and when they do in that moment, I've created a new family. It's God's design for what marriage is to be about. And yes, there is still a tie to the old family. I'm not going to get into a counseling session with you here today. But yes, there's still a tie to mom and dad. And that's why we call them in-laws, not outlaws. I mean, there's friendliness in all of this. At least there's supposed to be. But what you need to see is that God's not as concerned about that He's concerned that a new family has been declared. That's marriage, and God is the creator of it. And this is why, I get this question all the time, this is why in the Hebrew culture, they had elaborate and wonderful marriage ceremonies to mark this occasion, complete with the the priests there and the I do's and the celebration and all the symbolic things. Jesus went to one of those kinds of weddings in Cana, And this is why Christians then picked up the same tradition and developed all these wonderful ceremonies as cultures change, different kinds of ceremonies. But here's the one thing they all have in common. You ready for this? You got a man, you got a woman, they've both left their family of origins, they've fallen in love, and they stand before God. And they make a commitment, we'll talk more about that in a minute here, to each other, saying their I do's. And here's what you need to know. God, who loves you, shows up there and says, I take you at your word. You are now one flesh, and marriage has begun. And some Christians don't like it when I say this, but this is good theology. Uh, Does that have to happen in a church, yes or no? No. I like it when it does. I don't like country club weddings as much, though I do them. I like them when they're more in a church, but you Scottsdale people seem to like to get married at country clubs, but that counts if you get married at a country club. Let me, ask it, let me ask it even further. Does there have to be a minister present, yes or no? Not necessarily. Again, don't go out here saying Jamie said they didn't have to have a minister. I think it's nice to have a minister. I think you'd want to have your spiritual leader there. But here's how we know that, that even if a minister is not uh, uh, present, you're still married. You know how? If, if, go with this fictitious scenario with me. Say somebody runs up to Vegas and decides to get married. And say they're believers or even not believers, and and they go up to Vegas and they get married, and and about a year later, they start attending Scottsdale Bible Church, and their marriage goes south, and they come to see me for counseling, and say their argument to me is, well, hey, you know what, we didn't know what we were doing, and you know, we just went up to Vegas, and there wasn't really a minister there, and it wasn't in a church, so it didn't count, Pastor. What would I say to them? Did it count, yes or no? Yes, here's, here's what you have to wrestle with. How would you explain to them why it counted? See, I have an answer based on Genesis 2.24, and the reason it counted, and this is so beautiful, <laughs> is because God was in Vegas that night. <laughs> Amen? He was. God was there when they said their ideas. Now, again, young people, I'm not telling you to go to Vegas to get married. Uh, But God was there, and he took them at their word when they said their I do's, and they are a husband and they are wife in that moment. And and that's the way God says this works. Yes, have a wonderful religious ceremony. Yes, probably do it at a church with your minister. But even if you don't, he takes you at your word. I've said for years, it takes three to get married, husband, wife, and God. 
And our state, by the way, does ask that you have witnesses and have the state sign it and all that, but that's just the state. God functions differently in this, and this is his idea of marriage. Now, with that understanding, what I don't want you to miss more than anything in all of this is the overriding value that God places on his creation design, and it's the value, as we said, of permanence. And some of you are saying, where's that? Well, I want you to look at how Jesus uses this understanding of Genesis 2.24 when he was on this earth in a teaching that he was doing with the religious leaders of all people in his day. And he quotes a portion of Genesis 2.24 and then adds something to it as the incarnate son of God that gives some texture to our understanding. Look at Matthew 19, verse 6. In talking directly about Genesis 2.24, Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. We just saw that. Now watch this. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Whoa. What God has joined together, let no man separate. We know what that phrase joined together means. We already saw that. It means to stick like glue. It means to come together as husband and wife, and you now are seen by God as one flesh. But that phrase, let no man separate, here's all you need to know about that, is that in the Greek, he could not have said it stronger. That phrase in the original Greek means to place no room between. I've pictured it for years, like somebody trying to come with a crowbar and pry these two people apart. And God says, let no man, let no one ever try to do that. John Calvin, the great reformer, said it this way. He said, this phrase means, and I quote, to tear from him as if it were the half of himself. And you see, that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's telling us that in God's design, marriage is something to occur once and never to be dissolved until death. Which is why the vows that we still use in marriage say to love and honor till death do us part. Now, I I promised myself and the Lord when I knew I was going to talk on marriage here that I was not going to be negative about it. You know, a lot of ministers, especially the more conservative ones that I ever hear talk about marriage, man, what do they ever talk about? Not marriage, but the opposite of it, they talk about divorce. And and, and that is not going to be the topic of conversation here. But I do want to, in the backdrop of all the divorces that have gone on in our culture and how we have messed up God's design here, I, I do want to encourage one particular generation that is in our culture today that doesn't get enough accolades, and it's the millennial generation. I I did a lot of research in preparation for this message to understand what's going on with marriage in our culture. And as you all know, there's tons of stats and and a lot of good studies. And again, I'm not going to get down on boomers. I really won't. But I'm a baby boomer. And let's just say that baby boomers messed up this thing called marriage. Many of us did. And we are still messing it up. You got to Google this someday. Google the phrase gray divorce, G-R-A-Y, divorce. It's a new phrase they're now using for baby boomers over 50 that now have gray hair and are still divorcing twice as much as their parents did at the same age. Most recent Pew Research Study 2015. 
Again, baby boomers, I'm telling you guys, we gotta get with the program here. We gotta get with God's design. Here's the good news in all of this. 2018 study done by the University of Maryland compared the last, did a deep dive into the last census data and they found that among millennials, the divorce rate dropped by 18% from 2008 to 2016. So while boomers are going up in their rate, millennials are going down at a rather significant rate. And again, they're asking the question, why? One of the obvious reasons is, is that they're getting married later. And so they're counting the costs, they're preparing better, and, and that will have you know, good things and bad things with that, but they're getting later than, married later than their parents did. But here's another reason that they point out why millennials are doing so much better, and that is that they have learned from their boomer parents. And they have looked at their parents and said, I don't want that. I, I saw what that did. It wasn't God's design. Don't want to go down that road. And so the next time you see a millennial, why don't you try encouraging them? Don't make fun of them about their participation awards and things like that. Just encourage them <laughs> that, that they have really got this thing right called marriage and way to go. You're getting more in line with God's design because they need to be encouraged that way. See, this is the first part of God's design, gang. It's a creation design and it's marked by permanence. Now, Believe it or not, there's a lot more to God's design than this, much more. And the second thing I want to share with you today from God's word involves those who are now believers and followers of his son, Jesus. In other words, there is another aspect of God's design, you ready for this, that is only reserved for Christians. And I call it God's redemption design in other words, he has a specific design for your marriage now as a follower of Jesus. And, and, and if the first design is about permanence, this second design, we're going to say, is about being picturesque. And you're saying picturesque about what? I, I want to read for you a passage right now that some of you are going, I can't believe he's about to read this passage. It's one of the most contentious passages on marriage in all of the Bible. It's a passage that just cuts across the grain of the way that most modern people see marriage and relationships, and yet it's smack dab in the middle of one of the most wonderful books in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians. So let's wrestle with this passage. Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 25. I'm going to read the first half right now. It says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's pause right there. And this passage has been so debated in our modern era. There are actually Christians that have very differing views of this. It's, it's just come right up and it hit the whole women's lib movement, you know, flat like a brick wall. And, and this is a passage that, honestly, I get asked not to even read this at certain weddings nowadays. Because uh, I used to always read it at weddings. And I believe, as Lucas preached a little while back, as he preached on this passage, that much of our, our bristling at this passage is born of a misunderstanding of what it's really getting at. But let me show you two things about this that I think we might want to process as we think about our own marriages and lives with this. The first is that it indeed is talking about roles here. 
roles that wives and husbands have in marriage. And though it's hard for some modern ears to hear that a wife should be subject to her husband, that he's the head of the, uh, of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, here's what I've learned over the years, and just take this tip for what it's worth, is that if husbands here would ever follow verse 25 and love their wives as Christ loved the church and to give up their lives as Jesus gave up his life for his church, I don't think most women would have problems with verses 22 to 23. In other words, I think most women would say, I'll gladly do that if you show up and do your job as a man, amen? In other words, I'm tough on this. When most men come to me and say, my wife isn't subjecting herself to me, I go, well, I know the answer right now. It's you. (laughs) The problem is, is that if you were loving her, I get weepy with this because this is my relationship with Kim, 30 years strong as the queen of your very life, as the one whom you promised on that wedding day to love honor and cherish till death do you part. That you love her as the scriptures go on to say here in a minute, more than your own body, more than your own self. If you dared to love her anywhere near how Jesus loves you, she would not be having the problem she has with you. And men, I know that's hard for some of you to hear. You want to write me emails giving me your tale of woe. Don't even do it. I'm not your guy on that one. Go to a therapist. They'll be a lot more empathetic than I will on that one. Because there's a reason I'm not a therapist. I'm a pastor who knows the word of God. And I've dealt with way too many men. And you'll hear a story here in a minute. I've dealt with me. And the problem in my marriage early on is that I did not love my wife as Jesus loved the church. And that was the creating problems with her. Once I started to do that, she, she joyfully said, may I follow you in your life? And again, I know we have problems with that too. And maybe that's for another sermon but maybe that help will take the edge off for some of you. But, but here's the other thing you know about, need to know about this passage, the second thing, and this will blow you away, and this is what Lucas was trying to get at when he talked about this passage, is that this whole idea of roles isn't really the heart of this passage. God did not design this for us to get hung up on wives submitting and husbands loving. That, that's not the purpose of this passage. The purpose of this passage is to reveal to us that there's something going on in marriage that is an image, a picture of Jesus and his love for you and me. Let's read on what it says. It's picking on husbands a lot more than it does wives here. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, speaking of Jesus and the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, quoting Genesis 2.24, man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What's it saying here? Don't miss this. It's poetic, flowery language, and it's trying to communicate to you and I that there's something going on in the lives of two Christ followers who decide to get married, and here's what it is that's going on, that when they love each other, 
But when they self-sacrifice for each other, when they put the other person's needs first, when they work through conflict in a God-honoring way, when they commit to each other and, and believe those words to each other, when they do all of that, there's something picturesque about how Jesus does that for his church. There's something picturesque about how God does that for us. And the way it's supposed to work, I'll pick on Ed and Diane here. You've been married how long? Glad you got that right, Ed. 46 years. So that when Ed's kids and grandkids look at their marriage, they go, whoa. Not just for 46 years, but they say, if God is anything like that, if his grace is anything like that, if his love is anything like that, he must be an awesome God. That's the way it's supposed to work. That marriage becomes a picturesque thing for who God is in our lives. That's part of the God's design for marriage when it comes to his followers. Marriage becomes picturesque, revealing to all that see it who God is and what he is about. That's why I say Ephesians 5 is not just about roles. It's much deeper than that. It's about this idea of a picture. I got to ask you, are you beginning to see why the initial question I asked you is so important? That marriage, this commitment of a man to a woman and vice versa, is not something simply rooted in society and culture, though it is. No, it's designed by God, the creator and author of life, the redeemer of our very souls, who has given us some key truths and parameters, like it being permanent and picturesque, that allow us to make the most of it. Now, with this understanding, it obviously does not take a PhD in computer science to realize that many of us have frustrated God's plan. Give me a head now that y'all understand that. I mean, even if you've never been through a divorce, you know that there have been times, most likely, where you have frustrated God's plan. Man, you haven't loved your wife as Christ loves the church and what have you, and, and it creates a really difficult scenario. Sin is just so ugly, especially in a marital context. So what do we do when the marriage goes south? What do we do when really difficult times hit? I want to wrap up in the 11 minutes we have left. We're going to do this rather quickly, but hopefully this will be meaningful with three helps, if you will, that have helped me over the years that come right out of God's design for marriage that have helped Kim and I get through some difficult times. And here's the first one. And that is that when you don't feel like keeping the vows, that's the title of my message here, allow the vows to keep you. When you don't feel like keeping the vows, allow the vows to keep you. You know, we could put this on a bumper sticker. <laughs> it's a nice little saying, but it's so much more meaningful than a bumper sticker, at least it is to me. The year was about 1992. Abby had just been born. And Kim and I were living in a little apartment in Detroit. I was an associate pastor at my first church. And this is a true story. It's going to sound so ominous, but it was a life changer for us. I walked in one day, and I can, I can still picture it in my mind's eye. I looked to the right, and there were two suitcases waiting by the front door. And Kim walked in the room, and I could tell she was serious. I said, what's up? She said, I just need some space. Man, those are just terrible words to ever hear. I said, what do you mean you need some space? She said, I just can't take it anymore. And clueless me said, take what? <laughs> she said, you. 
And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you're, you're so driven. You're always working. The church is way before me and the girls, and, 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 and I get nothing from you, and you're as distant as distant could be. And though I said I do four years ago and I still love you, I just can't put up with this anymore. And I said, Kim, you can't leave. She said, I'm leaving. I begged her not to leave that day. I said, just stay one more night. Let's talk about this. Let's work it out. And she said, okay. So she put her suitcases back in the bedroom, and I said, I need to step out and go talk to Kevin. Kevin was our senior pastor. And so I went over to Kevin's house, and he meant very well that night, but he looked at me and said, dude, you've got to get this thing under control. You've got to get your marriage right. He said, because if you don't, you're going to lose your ministry. I went home to Kim that night, and I said, you can't leave, Kevin said, because if you do. <laughs> I did. I said that. I said, if you do, uh, I'm going to lose my ministry. I was so dumb and, and, and she started to cry and she said, you have no idea how messed up you are. You have no idea like what it is even you're saying. And I said, I don't know what to do. She said, I do. We need to go get help. So she stayed and we made an emergency appointment. They did, churches didn't have counseling centers back then. Remember those days? Like, you know, we didn't, we didn't have any help in our church. Kevin already showed me how he was going to help, you know. And, and so we made an appointment with one of the top-notch therapists over in Novi on the far west side of Detroit. We got somebody to watch the kids. We drove an hour over there and it was life-changing. Uh, the gal's name was Mary. She's a great, great Christian counselor. We became dear friends with her and her husband, Tom. They were husband and wife in practice. And true story, Mary listened to us and, and she said two things that day that forever changed us. The first thing she said is that you, Jamie and Kim, need to stop throwing around the D word. Because what we had done over the last year is that as our marriage had started to erode, we just kept talking about divorce and this. And she said, you both are Christians. You're followers of Jesus. You're not going to do that. Stop using that word. And that was the birth of this phrase for us. About a year later, this phrase would be what Kim and I would start to use, that when we don't feel like keeping the vows, we're going to allow the vows to keep us. Because the D word is not even in the vocabulary. That, that was worth the, the weight of gold right there in our session with Mary. But the second thing she said, I've told you guys this before, it's a true story. She said, um, I don't need to see her anymore. We need to see you for a very, very long time. And uh, she referred me to her husband, Tom, and I saw him for two years every week, 90 bucks a pop. I didn't have the money back then, but it was well spent. And, and, and two years I spent just unraveling father issues and drivenness and insecurity Men, listen to me, all the things that was getting in the way of my marriage. I thought they were personal things for me. They weren't. They were just sabotaging my marriage because I wasn't loving my wife at all as Jesus would love the church. And as Kim and I started, and by the way, it took years, as we started to heal in our marriage, this became an operative phrase for us that when we don't feel like keeping the vows, the vows keep us. And you need to see why that was so important. I mean, I, when I come home from therapy each week, you know, I, I was changing, women, can you relate to this for your husbands? Very, very slowly. I mean, incremental, yes, but it was not a quick fix. As Tom once said to me, it took you 30 years to get this messed up. You know, we're not going to fix it in, in 30 days. And, and so it will be a very long journey, what one author calls a long obedience in the same direction for me back in the 90s. 
And surely after about five, seven years, our marriage started to get become this most intimate, wonderful thing. In fact, I used to tease Kim that, you know, for the first five to 10 years of marriage, she'd be chasing me, trying to get me to, to stop working so hard, stop it, you know, and she'd be chasing me. And, and when I finally repented and did this and said, okay, she started to run that way then. And I've been telling her for the last 25 years, I've been chasing you, baby. I've been chasing you. And maybe that is the way it's supposed to be, men. When you don't feel like keeping the vows, allow the vows to keep you. We went through some very rough years in our marriage. And, and, and again, I, I almost can't do weddings now because these vows are so meaningful to me. Let me share with you the vows I took very quickly with Kim, just a portion of them, because you probably took something very similar. I, Jamie, take you, Kim, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And then we added this, this is my solemn vow according to God's holy ordinance. And with this ring, I pledge you my love. See, I don't know about you, those are meaningful to me. And there are days still now, and I'm not slighting my wife, Kim. I love her as the queen of my world. But there are times when I don't feel like keeping the vows. Is that real enough? There are times where marriage gets difficult, and I'm angry at her, and I'm mad, and I tend to be a passionate man, and when I get angry, I get angry, and things like that. And and on those days when I don't feel like keeping the vows, you know what I've learned to do? I allow the vows to keep me. I'm not going to do something stupid. I'm not going to let this thing go any further south than it already has. And I do that because God is the one who designed my marriage. God is the one who is in control. I was driving down the road this week on my way home from the church, and I got a call from a guy who was hoping he would call me, whose marriage is in a lot of trouble. And I was glad he called me, because many times people don't want to talk to me when their marriage goes south. After today's sermon, many of you go, I know why. And, uh, and, and so people just avoid me. They'll make an appointment at the counseling center, but I'm not talking to him. And, and, and he had the guts, men, to call me, because he wants out of his marriage. And, 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 and there is no, there's no adultery, there's no abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. A couple of things, you know, that Jesus says would maybe allow us out of our marriage, you know, maybe. And there was none of that. And, uh, and, and, and so... Uh, he called me and, and I pulled over. I, I pulled him right to the Circle K parking lot there and, and I spent 45 minutes on the phone with him and it got really heated at one point because at one point he said, I, I just, I, I can't take it. I can't stay in. And I said, dude, this is your vow. This is your commitment. God has called you to stay in because he's, he's a follower of Jesus. And he said, and I, and I said to him, I said, give me one reason, one reason why you would have any reason to leave her. And I loved it. He gave me the answer every man gives. I'm unhappy. I'm unhappy. And I wanted to say, what does that have to do with it? But I knew that wouldn't be winsome. So I didn't say that. I said, I understand you're not happy. I said, but you know, there's weeping in the night, but joy is going to come in the... I have been happy for 20 years. I go, I understand that. I understand you haven't been happy in a long time. But I said, there are greater things than happiness. You, you stay in this. God is going to bless this. He's going to honor this. You need to stay in. And then he asked me, I loved it when he asked this. He said... If this was you and you were unhappy in your marriage, would you stay in? I thought, oh, I got him right now. (laughs) Because I didn't even have to answer. I paused for just two seconds too long because he said, I know what you're going to say. Of course you would. And I said, yeah, of course I would. And I said, do you know why? 
And he had the exact right answer, gang. He said he was mad. He goes, because of Jesus. <laughs> I said, exactly because of Jesus. And I said, and if it wasn't for Jesus, I probably wouldn't stay in. Because here's the thing, gang. If it wasn't for Jesus, honestly, this doesn't mean a lot to me. When I don't feel like keeping the vows, allow the vows to keep me, I can't do that without Jesus. Amen? I can't do that without God's help. I can't do that without him being my all in all, him being my satisfaction, him being my sufficiency. And this is what people today don't understand. They don't understand the central role that God's design plays in our marriage and that staying close to him is your ace in the hole. Staying close to him is your trump card when things go south because he is the one who's gonna hold your heart and hold your mind when those dark days hit. And that's all I tried to help my friend understand. Just, just draw close to the Lord. He has promised he will draw close to you and he will get you through this. I know this sounds pie in the sky for some of you. I know some of you are in a really difficult spot right now. I get that. But I beg you today to get some vision, uh, to get some, some conviction and, and to at least look God in the face and say, God, help me, help me when it comes to your plan here. Uh, second thing I want to share with you, because we're pretty much out of time, is never give up on intimacy. Uh, again, my, my, my friend was right that there are times where for decades you can be in a marriage that feels miserable to you. But, but, but part of the fact is, is that we give up uh, on, on seeing that, that little spark of that little ember becoming a flame again. And, you know, one of our uh, counselors who was on staff here for years at our church is here in this service right now. And, and she would tell you that though it's a long road, it, it, it's very possible. In fact, I would add, add, add it's probable that, that if two people really work at it, that that intimacy can be restored. Uh, we have seen marriages here that, that certainly were on their last breath. And because both decided to try to make it, give it a go. And we've seen God, as he talks about his word, just breathe new life into these dead bones, that dry bones, dead bones can cer certainly live again. He can redeem the years that the locusts have eaten. That's God, and he is good for that. Don't give up on intimacy. And then lastly, and we've already hinted this, don't be afraid to seek help. You know, again, back in 1992 when I walked through that door and Kim wanted to leave and things were really, really bad and I was completely clueless, I had no idea what to do. My senior pastor had no idea what to do. We're theologians for crying out loud. We know the Bible, we love you, we love the Lord, but we're not professional counselors. The good news is we live in a day and age where a lot of help abounds, a lot of help in this church abounds. Neil's gonna talk here in a minute and so will Rick and, and Rustin and Ray at the other campuses and venues. They're gonna talk to you about what kind of help you can get. We're very available to you. People much better than me, by the way, in this because they know how to help you in some of the, 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 the minutia and tactical things in your situation. But don't be afraid to seek it. I can't tell you how many times I've been talking to a well-meaning Christ follower who's about ready to just get out of their marriage and I'll say, well, what have you tried? Well, you know, they really haven't tried getting the outside help that they need. There's help available to you. God is good, and he is available to you and the resources that he provides. At the end of the day, here's what I want you to hear, and I say this at every wedding. It's one of my favorite parts of the wedding, is that right after I do the vows and right after the rings, I quote for them Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 31, that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
One of the most positive verses in all the Bible. And here's what I know. I know this with everything in me, gang. God is for you. He is for your marriage. And if he is for you, who can be against you? No one. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your word gives us such great hope even in dark times. That your word comes along and even though, Lord, some of us don't want to hear these things today, your word comes along and tells us that there's a great design behind this leaving and joining in one flesh thing you called marriage. And God, I pray that if we're followers of you today, we'd also realize that there's a redemption uh, thing going on here too that becomes picturesque of the grace of God operative in our lives. And so, Father, I pray for all of us here, Lord, that if we're ready to shout amen at this message, that, Lord, you would just continue to encourage our spirits. May we be a joyful influence on those around us. Lord, I pray for for others of us who might be real beat up and in the crucible right now. May they know they're loved by you and, and that your hope and your grace is certainly available to them. Guide them during these turbulent times. Let them know they're not alone. And we pray, God, that you would continue to to love and honor uh, us as your children and give us the help we need. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.